0: chapter 2 still, uh, looking at verses 13 through 23, so I invite you to open up your pew Bibles. It's page number 1,498. And that's Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. Hear the word of the Lord. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if the Magi were noticed on the streets of Jerusalem, which was a very large city, uh, they certainly would have stood out on the streets of Bethlehem. At the time of Jesus, uh, Bethlehem was approximately 300 to 1,000 people, and as we all know, uh, news travels fast in a small town. So at the very least, uh, what the people of Bethlehem would have known was that these foreigners showed up, and they went and stayed with Joseph and Mary, that, that new couple that had just moved into town during the time of the census and stayed with their young son. But no sooner had the Magi arrived and they were gone. They disappeared in the middle of the night. And then, before anybody could ask Joseph or Mary what had happened, they were gone too. And so the people of Bethlehem would have likely had a lot of really good questions. Who were these Magi? Why did they come? Why did they leave so soon? Where did they go? Where's Joseph and Mary? Did Joseph and Mary go with the Magi? But it wasn't long uh, before these questions were the least of Bethlehem's concerns. Likely within days or even hours after Herod found out that the Magi had tricked him, He sent soldiers to Bethlehem with orders to murder all the children that were two years old and under. And we have to think about what this would have required. Uh, This would have required them to forcibly enter the homes of these families and then to um, physically remove the child uh, from the clutching arms of their parents And then we don't know how swift the murder was after that, but it very well could have been right in front of them. What would that have been like? One can hardly imagine the panic and the fear and the trembling and the screams. Why God? Why? Given the population of Bethlehem, there were at most 20 children murdered that day. Not enough to become a historical massacre, but certainly enough to scar the families for the rest of their lives. And all the people of Bethlehem knew was that some foreigners came and left... Joseph and Mary left, who happened to have a child who was a male that was under two years old, and that their children were dead. What just happened? So this passage raises some pretty powerful questions about God's goodness in the face of evil. It raises powerful questions about God's control over the events of history and and how that intersects with the decisions that you and I make. Why did God even allow the Magi to come if he knew this was going to happen? Then God sends dreams to the Magi to save them. He gives Joseph three dreams to save Jesus and Mary. He clearly has the power to intervene, And why did he allow these children to be killed? So this passage raises these questions. But the question is, does this passage answer these questions? As far as the narrative goes, it's quite simple. Uh, Earlier in chapter 2, when the Magi were with Herod in his palace, he asked them when they first saw the star... And uh, that clues you in to the fact that Herod likely had a backup plan uh, in place just in case the Magi didn't come back. And then God gives, them a ma- uh, gives the Magi a dream, tells them to go a different route, so of course they don't come back. And then Herod puts into, plan, or into place his backup plan. So in order to protect Jesus and Mary, God speaks to Joseph in another dream, telling him to take them to Egypt. And then Herod, in his psychotic anger, sends soldiers to Bethlehem to murder the children. After a few years, Herod dies, and so God sends another dream to Joseph, telling him to bring the child back to Israel. But before they can settle down anywhere in Israel, uh, Joseph's intuition is confirmed by another dream, uh, because Archelaus, Herod's son, who took over for him and was reigning over Jerusalem and Bethlehem, it uh, wasn't safe uh, to go back to that region. And so Joseph takes his family back up to Galilee, in Nazareth, where uh, Joseph and Mary are originally from. And that's it. In terms of a story, there's not, not much to it. In fact, I was reading this story with my children in the Action Bible just the other day, and it takes up just two pages. But Matthew is doing a lot more here than simply telling us a story. He's, he's placing the events of Jesus' early life, into a much larger context. Matthew is telling us that these events are not random. Instead, we're told that these events actually fulfill Scripture. And by keeping the narrative short, what what he's doing is highlighting the Old Testament significance of each of these episodes and Jesus' early life. And it's in the way that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament where we get our answers to those deeper questions. Our first fulfillment comes from verses 13 through 15, where an angel comes to Joseph in a dream and tells him to take his family and to go to Egypt because Herod plans to search out the child and put him to death. And as he's done before, Joseph immediately obeys, right? Right? Because Joseph knows that God's word is more true than whatever he thinks or whatever he feels. And so he takes Jesus and Mary to Egypt until Herod dies. And then we're told this. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. So this quote comes from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And what's interesting about Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 is it's not a prophecy. It's not even talking about the Messiah. In fact, the book of Hosea is all about how God has done nothing but pour out His love and grace on the people of Israel and how they returned His love uh, by continuing to choose their sin over Him. And as chapter 11 begins, Hosea is pointing them all the way back to God's love and faithfulness And how he kept his promise to them by rescuing the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And so the question is, how could Matthew say that Jesus fulfilled something in the future that Hosea is pointing to in the past? Right? You you can't fulfill something in the future that happened in the past because it already happened. Well, the first time God called his son out of Egypt, the son he called was the entire nation of Israel. And he literally rescued them from slavery to the Egyptians. He rescued them from their own ignorance about him. He showed them his power over Pharaoh. He showed uh, them his power over nature through all the signs and wonders of conquering Egypt as he rescued them out. Then he takes them out into the desert and he spends several months painstakingly communicating to them just who he is. So that they can understand what it means to be one of God's people. And what it means to have been rescued by his sovereign hand out of slavery in Egypt. And the story of the rest of the Old Testament is the story of how the people of Israel never really get it. And their repeated failure over and over again, no matter how much God does to save them, drives home the point that they are simply not able to keep from sinning. And so if God is going to save his people, right, something else has to happen. In verse 2 of Hosea, chapter 11, we read this. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. The more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and they burned incense to images. So we need to be saved by a son of God who is able to succeed where Israel failed if we are ever going to be saved, it's going to be by someone who can pass the test and carry us along with them because guess what? We are like Israel. We have a gravitational pull back to our sin no matter how much God calls us and calls us. And so what Matthew is pointing out is that Jesus is that son. Jesus is the ultimate son called out of Egypt. In chapter 3, Matthew is going to talk about how Jesus entered into the waters of baptism. Chapter 4, he's going to tell us about how Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted and tested. In chapter 5, Jesus is going to go up onto a mountain and as God is going to give to God God's people, God's law. Because Jesus is the true Moses. Remember, Moses was also rescued from a murderous king when he was a baby. Moses went up onto the mountain and gave God's people God's law, right? Jesus is the true Israel who was called out of Egypt by God through the waters of baptism and into the wilderness to be tempted and tested. Except Jesus will pass the test. So yes, God called the nation of Israel out of Egypt, but when God called Jesus out of Egypt, Jesus finally fulfilled God's purpose in that calling. But how does this help a mother of a one-year-old whose son was just ripped from her arms and murdered in Bethlehem that day? How does this help us in the midst of our sorrow and tragedy. Before I say how, let me say that the truth that I'm about to speak doesn't resolve the pain or the emotions that we experience in our tragedy and sorrow, nor does this truth that I'm about to speak answer the question, why did God let this happen? But the truth that I'm about to speak anchors us in the storm. And so the truth is the truth that we must grip onto before tragedy comes. You see, what we need, more than being kept from any one individual instance of pain and sadness in this fallen world, is to be saved from the reason that those things happen in the first place. It's like when a diabetic gets sores on their feet from poor circulation, right? We, we grieve the sores, we treat the sores, but the real problem is a disease. We need a Savior who will succeed where the first son failed more than we need to be kept from any specific form of suffering, because we need to be saved from the cause of suffering in the first place, which is our sin, and this story isn't supposed to make us think God should have done something different to save those 20 children in Bethlehem. Because that kind of rage from Satan should have been expected if God was going to send his rescuer into this world. No, that story, if anything, highlights exactly why this world needs a savior. Because King Herod is not the only person causing sorrow and tragedy. And the cause of sorrow and tragedy lives inside the heart of every single one of us. Yet God promises His people that there is purpose in all of our pain and our sorrow. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that all things, including somehow when maniacal kings kill innocent children, right, we know that in all things, God works For the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I'll end this point with one quote from a commentary that I'm using. It says this: it says, The death of a child is the most mysterious of all deaths, yet most common. The death of a child often draws the parents to a heaven they would not else have sought. The next uh, fulfillment is specifically related to Herod's murder of the children. Um, Herod found out the Magi tricked him, skipped town, and we're told he's furious. And in his rage, he goes and he has the children murdered. And then we read this. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So we've already seen that what happens to Israel in the Old Testament is a pattern for the life and ministry of Jesus. And in this fulfillment, the circumstances surrounding this quote from Jeremiah is also pointing us to a pattern which is meant to provide us hope. Jeremiah, if you'll recall, was a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, for 40 years leading up to the time that Babylon destroyed Jerusalem and the temple and exiled the people to Babylon. And if you read through the book of Jeremiah, it's actually a very exhausting read because there's not a lot of hope in it. It's it's really just one prophecy after another against Israel about their sin, warning them, if they continue in their sin, that God is going to send Babylon to them to conquer them and exile them. And it's, it's, a, it's a drain. But, sprinkled throughout the book of Jeremiah are all these little promises about a new covenant. There will be a time when God will restore his people and, and he'll give them true life and he's going to save them from their guilt and their corruption and he's going to give them a new heart and he's actually going to make them able to obey God's commandments. And the largest section in Jeremiah Where we get the the fullest picture of this this new covenant is in chapters 30 and 31. And these chapters are all about how God is going to restore His people. He's going to give them real joy through a right relationship with Him. And He's going to make them able to live in that relationship. And then then right in the middle of this beautiful description from God about how His people are one day going to rejoice, we read this. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, why would a verse like this show up pretty randomly uh, in a chapter where God's promising his people a new covenant and and that one day he's going to restore them and he's going to give them great joy? Why uh, why stick such a downer verse right, right in the middle of all that, especially in a book that's just kind of a downer anyway? Well, Ramah is a town just to the north of Jerusalem, and Jacob, who you may recall, uh, his name was changed to Israel, and his wife, his favorite wife, was named Rachel, and she's buried near Ramah. And Ramah just so happens to be the town where the people of Israel are assembled after Jerusalem is conquered and the temple is destroyed, and right before they're marched off to Babylon. Babylon. And so Rachel and Rama are associated with tears of sadness and sorrow for God's people. And it's like what God's doing right here in the midst of this chapter of of future joy and future restoration and a new covenant. He's reminding them that, that it hasn't happened yet, and that they still have to go through Rama to Babylon. And that what lies ahead from Rama is great sorrow. But the next two verses, Jeremiah says this. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. See, those tears have purpose, right? Your sorrow and your sadness is hard work. It's really hard work, and God knows it's hard work. But it will be rewarded, They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. In Matthew's original audience, they would have immediately downloaded this whole picture from chapters 30 and 31 of Jeremiah. They would have seen the sadness and the sorrow of the death of these children, and they would have been reminded that there is hope on the other side of this. God is saying to the women of Bethlehem, God is saying to us now that sadness comes before blessing. Sorrow turns into joy. All sorrow is a result of sin, whether our sin or the sin of others. But Jesus is here. The Savior has come. He's going to make a new covenant with us. He is here to save us from our sin, and he will wipe away every tear. And so this verse in both Jeremiah and Matthew is meant to remind us of these things. That even though the pain is more than we can bear, the fact that he has come and that God has supernaturally protected his own son in his childhood while he is vulnerable, that means that there is hope for us of restoration, rejoicing, and a new covenant. And this hope is so real and this hope is so powerful that it can pierce through the searing loss even of a child. Uh, The last fulfillment in this passage is probably the hardest one to unravel. And that's because it's not a direct quote from Scripture. In fact, the the town of Nazareth is not even mentioned in the Old Testament. Um, So after Herod dies, an angel tells Joseph in a dream it's safe to return uh, to Israel. Joseph obeys before they get settled there. Uh, Joseph hears that Herod's son Archelaus is ruling in Israel Uh, After Herod's death, his kingdom was divided up among his sons. Archelaus was the one who was given Jerusalem and Bethlehem. He happened to be just as insane as Herod, uh, but not as good of a politician. So he was actually removed from power a couple years after this. But at this time, Joseph receives another dream, confirming his suspicion that Archelaus is not safe and that he shouldn't go back to Bethlehem. And so he decides to take Mary and Jesus back to their home in Galilee. And then we read this having been warned in a dream he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene so like i said this uh, this fulfillment is a little more difficult to pin down because as i just said this isn't a quote from the old testament Nazareth is not mentioned in the old testament In fact, the closest we get is in uh, Isaiah chapter 11, where we find another messianic prophecy, which says this. It says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will will bear fruit. Well, the Hebrew word for branch is the word Nazar, where quite likely we get the word Nazareth. And so the suggestion here is is that Jesus grew up out of the branch of of Nazareth and, and produced all of his fruit, um, and so yes, there is potentially uh, some connection there, but the problem is is that uh, the branch is growing up out of the stump of Jesse, and Jesse was from Bethlehem. <laughs> so that, that doesn't quite fit. Uh, the other problem that we have here is, if we look at verse 23 again, we read, "So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. It's plural, right? So somehow, the fact that Jesus comes from Nazareth is something that the prophets of the Old Testament foretold, not just Isaiah. So what do we make of this? Well, if we jump over to John chapter 1, we read about Jesus calling his disciples. First he calls Andrew, John, and Peter, and then he calls Philip. And after Jesus calls Philip, we read this. Philip found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And then Philip's response is, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? You see, being from Nazareth was an insult. No one great comes from Nazareth. You see, if Jesus would have grown up in Bethlehem, Boy, that would have been been real credentials right there. He would have have been from the town of David. He would have been from the the place that the scribes and the Pharisees thought the Messiah was going to come from. There would have been honor and greatness built into that. And if if you recall, Joseph was trying to move back to Bethlehem, probably because he thought, well, that's where the Messiah is supposed to be from. But Jesus didn't come to bask in the glow of worldly honor and greatness. See, what Matthew was saying is that the uniform voice of all the prophets is that Jesus would be a Nazarene. He, he would be a man whose worldly credentials brought him disgrace and a poor reputation. And the fact that he bears the name Nazarene is a symbol for his, his humility which is what the Old Testament points to about the Messiah. In Deuteronomy 8.2, after spending 40 years in the wilderness between Egypt and the Promised Land, Moses says to the people of Israel, he says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. You see, and we all know this is true, we are tested in our humility. Right? When God humbles us, what's really in our heart starts to come out. Therefore, if Jesus is to be the true Israel who passes the test for us, then he would have to endure the greatest humility, which means he would have to come from the most humiliating place in Israel. Psalm 22.6 says, the uh, the Messiah is speaking here, and he says, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly. And riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Then, of course, there's the famous Isaiah, Isaiah 53 passage. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we have held him in low esteem. You see, the fact that Jesus is called a Nazarene instead of being from the town of Bethlehem exemplifies the humiliation foretold by the prophets. So how does Jesus' humiliation comfort us in our sorrow and our sadness? It comforts us because not only was Jesus born in a manger, and not only did he grow up a poor carpenter's son in the backwater town of Nazareth, but his whole life was a life of rejection and sorrow. His own people rejected Him. And then He suffered the greatest humiliation imaginable because remember, He is the eternal Son of God, come from glory with His Father, eternally begotten of the Father. He is worthy of all of our honor, all of our praise, all of our adoration, and yet He was beaten and spit on? He was stripped naked and led through the streets of Jerusalem, bloodied and mocked, and then hung on a Roman cross with all of his dignity taken from him. And so, even though in all our pain and all our sorrow and all our loss, we will never be able to answer the question why, we can always look to the cross and our Savior who became the ultimate victim of all of our sin. We have a Savior who knows our pain and sorrow and our humiliation because He took it on Himself and suffered the ultimately humiliating death. Then we also have a God who, as a father, knows what it's like to lose a son. and Then He rose from the dead, assuring us that there will be joy on the other side Of our sorrow. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we are so grateful that Jesus has done what your first son Israel could never do. He has fulfilled the Old Testament and all that it pointed to. He was the ultimate Moses, He was the ultimate sacrifice, He's the ultimate temple. He's the ultimate king. He's the ultimate priest. So he could take away our sins, which are many and great. And then, Father, his work in this life of conquering sin and death, rising and going to glory, taking our burden on himself, assures us that in all of our sorrows, there will be joy. And then he, even in his grace, meets us by his spirit somehow now because he suffered the ultimate humiliation so that he could save his people from their sins. And we look to him and we worship him. In Jesus' name, amen.